and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. My name is Sam Ludwig, his name Jack Hendon, episode 54 here on PGE, and this week, um, well, Jack, I think that the nail has been put into the coffin. I think that this is the end of the line for the 2021 Mets, uh, a uh, one in five week after that amazing series against the Yankees swept by the Cardinals lost the first two to the Phillies, a five-game losing streak, took the final game on a Jeff McNeil homer, which we'll talk about the whole week in general. But, uh, man, it's that Cardinal series. They needed wins in that series. Yeah. Yeah, you said it. Season's over. Um, for it to happen after the Yankees series is really uh, deflating. You know, I think that there was always the – the possibility that this team was not actually going to finish the job, but for them to literally charge right into a brick wall, the way that they did um, was really disheartening. Uh, when the pitching was going well, the hitting wasn't going well. When the hitting was going well, the, the pitching and the bullpen especially wasn't going well, just kind of the hallmark of a team that isn't made for the postseason. Um, if getting beat by the Cardinals isn't already a hallmark of a team that isn't going to make the postseason. Well, the Cardinals have been really good for a bit now. They're probably the hottest team in baseball right now. They followed up this, the sweep of the Mets with a sweep at home against the reeling Padres team. It looks like they're postseason bound uh, as boring as it is to have the Cardinals in the postseason again. Um I know they're good. I know that they're good. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's more so that like, they don't feel like they're that good though. I mean, you know, you can't really get beat by Kwang Hyun Kim and Harrison Bader. You know what I I mean? mean, But you, there's really no shame in, you know, getting beat by Tyler O'Neill who's broken out this year and is probably going to get some down ballot MVP votes. He's been really, really good. He's a lot of fun. And I, I don't like that. He's on a team that I find so revolting. I don't know. There's something about the Cardinals that have, it's just always rubbed me the wrong way. It's the, it's the like it's the, the Yachty Wainwright battery oh uh, well yeah it probably is all rooting in 06 but I think a lot of it is also like they just seem so as a franchise full of themselves a lot of the time like it's the cardinal way you know like uh they they're the the upstanding citizens of major league baseball when in reality they're probably just like the Yankees of the Midwest yeah I think that's not uh, Yankees of the National League, you could even say. Honestly. Yeah, you could. I, I don't know. They've just they're they're frustrating. They've uh what kind of streak have they put on where it's like they just don't they they've had like they haven't had consecutive losing seasons in like 50 years or some crap like that. I don't even yeah. know. I saw some stat like that earlier this week where they I don't know. The the, the consistency is remarkable, but they are boring. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can't wait for them to get steamrolled in the wild card. If they, if they win the wild card, I'm going to be pissed because they're not even like a team that I would like enjoy as like an underdog, you know, to, no, to pull it off. It's, it's just one of those things. I mean, there's just teams- a bunch of slap hitters and Tyler O'Neill and Paul Goldschmidt kind of buttressing the offense. It's just whatever. Yeah. And, and Nolan Arenado. So they do have some stuff oh, yeah. this year. Whereas it feels like in the past, it's, it's been a bunch of like boring hitters and like Albert Pujols. Or in most recent years, it's like just a bunch of boring players. Like when they made that run and had that weird series with the Braves where they uh, got like absolutely blown out. Mm-hmm. Uh, or no, when they blew the Braves out and then got swept out of the the, the NLCS by the Nationals. Like yeah. that team wasn't a good team. No. This is probably on paper a better team for the Cardinals. So I guess there's no shame in losing to 
like they did get beat up by good players like Nolan Arenado and Tyler O'Neill took them to town in this series but also so did Harrison Bader but he's got a chip on his shoulder this was a homecoming series for, for him you know he's a, a New York City kid a horseman guy um but it's, it's I mean that's it's that's the Cardinals we got the Mets too who yeah I mean I, I don't want to avoid yeah well that's that's the Cardinals I don't know I was just I was just saying yeah. how like on on the schedule, like a, a month ago, it didn't feel like a series where you have to really worry about getting swept because the Cardinals felt very mediocre for a while. But they've gone on such a streak in the past month, month and a half that uh, they were just the wrong team to run into. Even coming off of the high of the Subway Series, winning the Subway Series with the the Lindor game, uh, I don't know. It's it, honestly, I'm more frustrated about the two front losses to the Phillies, um, the Cardinals series. It is just kind of what it is. Like they they didn't hit, and then they had the 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 extra inning loss that they probably should have won that game. And then McGill has kind of I think hit a wall a bit. Um, he's starting to get hit around. He got blown up by the cards in the first inning. Yeah, yeah. I would argue a lot of them have hit a wall, and I think for me at least that's why. Because I, I was a little bit more numb to the Phillies games just because like at that point the season is over. Uh, with the with the you know whooping that the Cardinals laid on us it was just kind of like well we're like six games out of the wild card now and you know we we missed our bus with all the games that the Braves were losing like I think at that point it was pretty much over I mean when you're in situations where you know and I'm not gonna it's neither here nor there whether Luis Rojas is uh, is right to rest relief pitchers because of you know past usage and elect to throw Jake Reed because the, the fact of the matter is some of those relievers have also looked very gassed. Jerry's familia had a very, very bad week, probably his worst week in a long time. Um, he faced Trevor, May, Trevor May didn't look uh, all that dazzling either. I think that the, the use patterns throughout the year, I mean, this is, I hate to agree with A-Rod and I think in a lot of cases he's wrong, especially with this one argument, I think he's wrong on a lot of accounts, but you know, when you have starters that just can only go five, six innings and, and you don't have a Jacob deGrom in there who's going to give you seven or you don't even have like an innings eater of some kind, it's 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 really hard to win. Uh, it's because you pass the ball off to more relievers. And at this stage in the season, those guys are more likely to be tired. The only one that's really maintained at all is Aaron Loop, I would I would say. Um, yeah, Aaron Loop, who's, by the way, got his ERA down to a flat 1.00. So good on him. It, yeah. he'd be like the if he can get it below one to finish the season i think he's in like elite company in terms of guys who have finished with a you know relievers who have finished with a, a full season with an era under one i think it's zach Britton a few years ago uh wade davis a few years ago and blake trinan when he had that amazing season with the a's since like 2010 it's those three guys i think o'flaherty did it once too when he was in that braves pen i'm pretty sure he did yeah he may have also but i, I know for a fact that Britton. Uh, Wade Davis and uh, Trinan are all the, like the three most recent guys to finish with an ERA under one for a full season as a reliever. So no Matt's uh, done it. Hmm? No Matt has done it. I don't no, think. no Matt. I can't remember. Not with that sample. I simply cannot remember uh, a relief season this elite from even. I was going to say from a non closer, but even from a closer, like the last elite closing season the Mets have had was Familia in like 2015. So yeah. Uh, and even then he had, you know, he blew some saves and whatever. Loop has been fantastic all year and uh, can't sing his praises enough. Very curious to see what an Aaron Loop free agency looks like. I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we get closer 
into the playoffs and towards the offseason. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about all that offseason crap when we get closer to the offseason. Jack and I agreed that that's future stuff, talking about like Luis Rojas's fate, talking about which, you know, which players to keep, which players to send off and, and sell out, sell out, sell off on, excuse me, and and what uh, front office moves need to be made. That's all stuff for later episodes. This week, we wanted to talk more so about just the, the week against the Cardinals and Phillies. And, and once we uh, get past the break in just a few minutes, we will, uh, we're going to talk a bit about the 30 for 30 that just aired about the 86 Mets because Jack and I both watched it. We both have thoughts on it. Um, but overall, you know, pivoting towards the Philly series now, uh, again, late, close losses. Yeah. Killed the Mets all year. Yep. They lead the majors in one-run games, and they have a losing record in one-run games. I don't know the exact record off the top of my head, but good God, it feels like their record could easily be flipped right now. They're, mm-hmm. what, six under 500 now? It feels like they're or five games under 500 now. Yeah. Uh, it feels like their record could easily be flipped based on, mm-hmm. you know, uh, an extra run here or there in, like, five or six games. Yeah, and I think also the fact that, within all those one run losses I mean really like realistically how many of those can you pin on the bullpen blowing a lead or you know uh, a pitcher like giving it back or even management making a bad pitching decision because usually when you think about one run losses you think about like walk-offs you think you know late and close someone blows something up but really up until this point like the relievers had been consistent and that's I think even more frustrating because it's literally right there for you to take from an offensive standpoint, like Ian Kennedy is just right there. Joe Girardi's throwing him for like the ninth time in 12 days. Like, like he's not even that good. Can you just hit him? Can you just get something going with runners in scoring position? I like, and I don't understand the, the, the way the lineups even constructed. It's like, they don't, that stuff always seems to bite him in the ass. I mean, all the way down to, you know, the fact that Dom Smith has gotten six at-bats a- across the last week or the fact that Javi Baez was batting sixth in the first two games. I mean, why is he batting sixth? Like, I don't know. This is all scattered. And I think I'm just kind of misdirected in my my frustration as far as why this team can't make it happen. But really, it's just like there are so many little things that if this team did right, if, if someone comes through when they otherwise didn't, we would be looking at more wins and yeah, it's, it's encouraging because it's like, they're in all these games, but like, I don't know. I, I, I like a W I don't like talking about games that they could have won, but didn't. Um, yeah, I would go, I would go so far to say as though it almost makes it worse that they're in all these games. I mean, like, cool. They're still fighting the same way they have all season. If it was May and they're in, they're in these games that are tough losses. It's like, okay, we expect this is going to turn around and, and even out at some point, but it's the end of the season. There's two weeks left. So. Uh, what can you even say at this point? It's just this is the way that the season's gone for this team is they just can't get over the hump, and it has stayed with them all season long, even with this offensive boost that Javi's brought. And Javi's been excellent. He's he's fixed his – you know, he's he's started to fix the walk rate. He's in the right direction there with this team. He's made some legitimate adjustments this week. Like, he had six walks this week in 26 plate appearances. That's – incredible because we're talking about Javi Baez you go back yeah. a month to what we were saying when the Mets acquired this guy we were like expect a lot of strikeouts don't expect any walks and he'll have the occasional home run and play great defense but what we've got is a is a much more complete hitter and I think that that part of that is that he's really bought into uh whatever the Mets have, have told him I was I was speculating before we we came on the broadcast or came on the uh the podcast with uh 
in a, in a, in a group chat, just talking about Baez and, you know, whether it's, it's Hugh Quattlebaum or, or whatever guys in the analytics department that have really helped him figure something out. Someone said that he's taking his walks, but it looks like he's, it's painful for him to take the walks, but he understands now that he has to, I don't know if the, what the Cubs approach with Javi was, if they just felt that, you know, we could tell him that he needs to walk more all he wants, but he's Javi. So he's just going to do Javi. So we might as well not even try. I don't know if that's the case, but clearly once he got to New York, someone said, Hey, if you do this, you'll be a better player. And he believed them and he has done it. It was never an issue of a bad eye at the plate with Javi. It was always an issue of a bad approach. And we still see the bad approach from time to time. I think that even the home run he hit to tie the game against the Cardinals, there's something indicative in that at bat about a bad approach. He sold out on a first pitch, leading off an inning down a run. His goal there should probably be get on base, and he swung at the swung out of his shoes in the first pitch, hit it out of the ballpark, but still not a great approach. It worked out for him. But right. the point being is that uh, he's been one of the best offensive players in baseball since he got to the Mets, and part of that is is because he's lowered his strikeout rate and he's raised his walk rate. That's going to do him very very well in this offseason. We'll talk about what a hobby free agency looks like uh, or what it should look like from a Mets perspective as we move forward towards the postseason. But I mean, my point was that uh, even him coming here and being this offensive superstar for a bit has not really helped in the run scoring department, because this is still a team that's 27th in baseball and runs per game. And if this was a team that was 22nd instead of 27th in runs per game, again, they probably have a winning record. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a lot of it, I mean, so much of it could just be simplified by what happened on Sunday night, their one win. You know, the two guys that come through are the two guys who have more or less been missing all season. And that was Dom Smith hitting a pinch hit to run double and then Jeff McNeil leading off the seventh with his first home run in a month and a half. Like, it's just, you know, where where has this been all year? That's really what it comes down to. It's because while those guys haven't really been here, there's been a lot of, it's basically been a game of musical chairs as far as who's going to have a consistently good set of at-bats in a game between Alonzo, uh, between VR, between um, Conforto. Uh, I mean, Nimmo has obviously been dealing with some injury stuff here and there. I mean, McCann hasn't really been that consistent. Like you, you really just, if you, if even one other person is doing their job in, in these situations, I think this team is at worst still 500 yeah i mean they have a they have a their run differential right now is only minus 20 for a team that's under 500 and has had such pockets where they haven't been able to score you anticipate that and being a little bit worse obviously a negative 20 run differential is still not good but it's a lot closer to breaking even than a, a team that's effectively out of the race probably should be i mean there are teams that are closer to the race especially in the American league, I believe the Mariners have kind of a crappy run differential because when they lose, they tend to lose Uh, who are still very much in the race. So uh, this is a team that's, that's been so close all season long and whether it's the injury bug that they've, they've dealt with through, you know, much of the season, especially on the offset, you know, both the offensive and the pitching side. um, But really in the front half of the season on the offensive side uh, or, you know, just the fact that maybe they are more mediocre than we thought, or, or there's something going on behind the scenes that's caused some of these players to have down years. Who even knows? But yeah, yeah. as we kind of eulogize the season, it's just like this consistent trend of the New York Mets 
have been on the precipice of figuring it out all season long. All it took was having the offense click at the same time as the pitching and going on a run. And they've gone on these kind of mini runs. They had that six winning, uh, six game winning streak against the, the uh, Marlins and the, the nationals a couple of weeks ago. Um, but like, it's just never enough. The runs are just the, the runs that they go on are never enough. And they're, you go on a run like that and then you have the Yankees and win a series against the Yankees. And then you go and you lose five straight. And it, yeah. this inconsistency is, I think going to be the, the mark of this team when we look back in two weeks and see them a couple games under 500 to finish the season or at 500 or however they finish. But yeah. uh, as we kind of eulogize the season, I think that's the big thing for me is, is they just couldn't really get it going. Um, and that's it. Yeah. One point about the run differential and then I'll, I'll let us go where we go. Uh, I actually looked this up cause I was curious cause I realized they were kind of creeping back to zero a couple of times. The last time the Mets had a run differential above zero was July 30th. They've been negative for two months. Like that's, or not two months, but like, you know, a month and a couple of weeks. And that's, that's probably what you can pretty much trace the, where this team fell off. I mean, it was after that five game set with the Braves in terms of how much harder it seemed to come by runs at that point. Um, I mean, that's the deadline. Yep. That's and the that's the deadline. deadline. It's that's they, the other thing too. That's the deadline. Were, and they were in first place on the trade deadline. And since then they've been, they've given up more runs than they've scored. And as a result, now they're out of the race. Like, right. There's well, a line a of demarcation. About the, there will definitely be a question about the front office's role in all of this. When, yep. when there is a line of demarcation where this season turned around and all the bad luck caught up to the team and started showing the results on the field that you would anticipate with a team that had so many injuries and a team that had kind of some off the field, you know, uh, issues and it all kind of caught up to the team at that mm -hmm. trade deadline. And it's obviously it's been downhill since then. And here we are with still, you know, two, two weeks to go kind of figuring out uh, and trying to get our thoughts tidied up on this team uh, and it, we feel like it's probably a, a month too soon to be doing that, considering where this team was a month and a half ago. Yeah, you, I mean, that's – I don't really know if I have much else to say. I mean, it, it just it, – it's over. We got two against Boston. We have a couple of days off. Today there's a day off. Thursday there's a day off. Um, they got two in Boston, three in Milwaukee, four at home against the Marlins, and then they have three against the Braves. And what are they, they're five and a half out in the division, seven out in the wild card with 12 to go uh mathematically to... mathematically there's a possibility like brandon nimmo said it before the game on sunday mathematically they're not out of it uh but they are effectively out of it the probability of them actually being able to make up that ground in 12 games exceedingly low yeah um theoretically if you can get it to three games by the last three games of the season you still have a chance because they're finishing up with the braves but the odds of that happening very very low um I don't know about you, Jack. After the sweep against the Cardinals, I, I've been more or less checked out. I, I just yeah. don't know if I can expend the, the the time with my busy schedule to watch nine innings of this team every single day. No, uh, after the extra innings loss, the the Jake Reed Albert Almora game, that's where that's where the faucet turned off for me. That's where it was just like what happens happens. I'll turn on the game and hope I watch good baseball. If there's, if it's bad baseball, then like it's bad baseball and, and, you know, whatever, but yeah, that, that's pretty much like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep watching, but I'm not expecting anything. Yeah. I'm going to watch when I have the, the ability to watch like physically, 
uh, like last night, Sunday night baseball, that was like the first game I had been able to watch since last Sunday night. Um, but I also had like a hellish week this week, so it's whatever. Um, but more or less, it's I, I'm just not going to make time to watch this team anymore, really. I mean, I'll, I'll watch when I can, but um, they're not doing me any favors. So um, why should I spend the, the free time I've got um, on a mediocre baseball team? That's kind of my thoughts about it. It's, it's a sad ending to this season um, that's had a lot of ups and downs. And the, the ups, as we've talked about, have been like super high. Yeah. Like the the Marlins walk off with the Javi Earring, uh, obviously the Lindor game. Those are probably two of the greatest moments that that they've had all. Probably the two greatest you know individual yeah. moments they've had all season. Yeah, provided by the two guys that everyone wanted to run out on a rail at the beginning of the month. I think that's that's something that uh, should be talked about a lot more at the end of the season. Hopefully, it's something that we get to talk about four years from now when those two are still together. But I that's and hopefully with a ring on their finger. So hopefully with a couple rings. Yeah. Speaking of rings, we're going to talk 86 Mets. Hell yeah. Yeah. Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about the ESPN 30 for 30. Once upon a time in Queens. We'll be right back. And welcome back for part two here today on the pleasant good evening podcast against Sam Levowitz and Jack Hendon. And so we talked 2021 Mets. Let's talk 1986 Mets, as we really haven't ever done so much. We don't talk too much history on this podcast beyond the history that we experienced growing up. We do remember a lot of guys, uh, but because Jack and I are both like in our early 20s, we tend to remember guys we grew up with. Uh, and I was not even a thought in my parents' brains in 1986. My dad was finishing, I just finished college. My mom was in the middle of college. Um, but we've obviously both heard the stories growing up, and we've obviously both watched every single piece of media probably ever produced about the 1986 team. And this ESPN doc is no different. Uh, if you somehow were living under a rock this week, ESPN promoted the hell out of this and released a four-part uh, docu-series on the 1986 Mets called uh, Once Upon a Time in Queens, greatest Mets team of all time, their last world championship team. Uh, it's four hour long parts. It's, I believe if you're a Mets fan, it's absolutely worth watching. Uh, before we go into like the specifics, Jack, what were your general thoughts about the documentary? Um, I loved it. I mean, my thing as a Mets fan is just that uh, I love to learn more about the team. Uh, I think it's really, really cool. It's, it's almost like exploring it. This is almost like for me getting a new Marvel movie. I know for a lot of people, they love superhero movies and that's like, you know, you get like ripples in the story that you didn't know about because they just introduced them to you. Uh, I mean, this is known stuff, but I wasn't around for any of it. I didn't experience any of it. Um, and even though I'd seen prior documentaries like SNY, I think did a couple way back in the day, they did a lot of stuff in 2016 for the 30 year anniversary. But this was like, this was a last dance treatment. This was getting all the guys back together um, having them spill their guts for two hours, putting all the footage they could together and basically writing a story about a stretch of three years, um, maybe four, if you consider, you know, the, what happened post 86 to be a, a year in itself. But, um, I think they did a, a phenomenal job with it. A lot of really interesting stories. And I think we all, everyone who's, who's a Met fan knows that the 86 team was, uh, a, a real cast of characters that pissed off a lot of people 
did a lot of things that are not done today, um, both on and off the field. But I think that the scope of that, the extent to which these guys were characters in their lives too, uh, was something I never really paid much mind to as a baseball fan. And I think ESPN did a really good job uh, tying those together and giving us an actual story that we could appreciate. Yeah. I, I, again, I think it's absolutely worth watching. I had a, a kind of more mixed feelings about it. I absolutely thought it was entertaining. Abs- absolutely. I did. I had a good time watching it. I felt like it was just missing like what it could have been. I felt as though um, we'll get into this. You said the last dance, like this is the last dance is great. The last dance is probably going to uh, affect sports documentaries for years to come and maybe not in the most positive way. I like, we'll, we'll talk about this. I just felt that it was good, but there were issues with pacing. I felt there were almost voices missing. I felt like certain stories didn't get the time that, you know, the attention to detail, they, they uh, probably could have needed. Um, but I do think there was a lot of positives and a lot of, I learned a lot about this team that I didn't know. Um, yeah. We're going to talk about that, but we want to, I want to start with like talking about kind of the way that it was paced and edited together. It got the last dance treatment, which is to say that it focused on the one year, like the last dance focused on Michael Jordan's last championship with the bulls, mm-hmm. but it backtracked. It started in the past, but it also kept present with that one year. And then as it introduced characters, it gave all the requisite backstories on those characters. Like there were episodes in the last dance. Obviously there was more than four parts of the last dance. They, they did a, a segment where they talked about uh, Scotty Pippen and gave all the background on Scotty Pippen and, and how his story worked with the greater narrative. And that's what they did with all the main characters uh, on, on this Mets team, especially in the first episode, mm-hmm. they told the story of how, all these pieces came to be Mets yeah. Um, and gave all this background on Keith Hernandez and his relationship with his father growing up uh, and, 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 you know, mixed it with this, uh, this old baseball movie that he felt was, you know, kind of parallel to his own story with his father. And then they talked about Dwight and Daryl kind of growing up in these bad households. And they talked about uh, Len Dykstra's <laughs> tryout, open tryout that got him yeah. to the Mets and how he had a chip on his shoulder because he's five foot eight. Like those snippets to me, I know what they were trying to do. And that background is super necessary. I think when you're introducing characters like this, but it was also like, they were like three minute long segments and they kind of just felt like the, that's what I mean by the pacing didn't really work for me. Like you um, don't think, do you, do you not think they like revisited them? It was something that didn't get its, its due. It felt to me as though they were just trying to get, that background information out of the way. I feel like this could have worked really well as a six part series, if you yeah. know what I mean. Oh, well, yeah, definitely. I think like, all of these kinds of documentaries, especially with sports, like with the history and the context that goes into it, they always thrive off more information. Um, like you could really, if you wanted to, you could have done a whole lot about the team before even the eighties with how they were deteriorating and with how ownership was, was, you know, running that team into the ground. Like, I think there are a lot of, there's a lot to be said of that. I also, I kind of feel like. I just want to add one more point. Yeah. Is that that when I say that, that it felt like it could have been a six part series. What I mean by that is it felt like there was a lot 
of other stuff that got kind of left out of the doc. And there was, I mean, Nick Davis, who's the director of this, he said on Twitter, there's a companion book for this documentary that, that is yeah. getting released. And he said, we had so much more content that we wanted to include, but we only had these four episodes that were an hour long a piece. So that's why we have a companion book that tells even more of the story. So right, I, I feel like because apparently if they had to cut a bunch of stuff that the pacing suffered as a result of it, mm-hmm. um, and they kind of had to allocate a certain amount of time for what they wanted, but they also had to tell the broader story of New York city in the eighties and what the team meant to New York and the troubles they had behind the scenes and then actually winning. Yeah. I think that they gave doc and Keith and also Daryl. I think those three, the, the, the opening stories that they gave about their lives and um, Keith's relationship to his family, especially, I think like those definitely got we got more on that as the uh, got, as the story progressed we got a lot of gary too we got a lot of gary carter gary carter also i mean it's difficult with gary because it's basically being told through his wife because of you know because he passed away in 2012 um very tragic um and the documentary did a good job i think paying its respects to although maybe they could have done a little bit more it's again it's hard um I don't know. I mean, I guess, yeah, pacing, it, it's something that will suffer. Uh, I think that they covered everything within 86 pretty well, at least, which was what they were probably going for. Um, they got a good two and a half episodes, basically, devoted to that one year. And, you know, I actually tried to keep track of, like, all the players that they did, like, individual profiles on. And they covered a lot. They covered a lot of bases. Some people, like, Howard Johnson gets no time at all. Um, that made me kind of sad because Hojo is like the lifer on that team, even if he didn't really like, like Mookie, I guess, going into 86 would be considered the lifer or maybe Jesse Orozco because he was acquired in like, I think 79, but you don't really, I think, get any of that with Howard Johnson, even if he can, even if his contribution was more so to those later teams, I think that there was a lot of value that was missed there, but like, like I love the 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 I think the the effort that they went to to teach us about George Foster for example because he's somebody that I think in a lot of circles is considered just like oh he was the guy that they cut from the 86 team like he was the guy who wasn't good enough to play for them but you know that's really not what it was I mean he saw them through 82 83 he basically moved with them the same pace that Keith Hernandez moved through with them um the same as Mookie the same with uh, a lot of guys and it was kind of unfortunate what ended up happening to him because he sort of became a, a punching bag. And, you know, in some respects, he was kind of right about uh, the team's preference. I think that the documentary did a very good job, uh, kind of like almost under the table, like subversively pointing out that Frank Cashin had these biases in the way that he talked about Doc and Daryl, the way he perceived Kevin Mitchell. Yeah. Um, those are things that, I never really considered, despite knowing, for example, that they traded Mitchell for McReynolds and Mitchell like won an MVP two years later. And, you know, I always knew that like Lenny Dykstra was actually like the bad guy on that team or like the bad influence, so to speak. But um, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, what I, they, I mean, the, the, the line that they said about uh, wrapping up Kevin Mitchell's story at the very end of the doc was very, very striking to me that uh, Frank Cashin dealt him because he was one of the three young black stars on the team but he was the expendable one 
because mm-hmm. and he you know Frank Cashin knew there was a drug problem on this team and of course uh as any you know racist problem I'm not going to say racist white guy in the, in the 1980s but a guy with biases in the 1980s who was on the older side uh probably assumed that drug problem may have related to his non-white players and so he got rid of the one that he thought he could justifiably get rid of even yeah. though it makes the documentary makes it very clear that among those three guys Doc Daryl and Kevin Mitchell. Kevin Mitchell was the one who was clean. Yeah. I mean, he was the one who like was probably the most like trying to think of the word. He was the most, I think, like playfully delinquent of of the bunch. Like he would just like go in the clubhouse. You know, the whole story about him basically like coming out in his underwear to pinch hit in game six was hilarious. Like that's what he would do. That was like an that would be considered an infraction. Or like he would fight. He would like fight on behalf of his teammates. He never started the fights, but he was always in the middle of scrums. Like he really loved being a part of that team. And um, it was it was a real shame what they did to him. And I think that the way that they kind of tie it back to Foster, they don't, they don't directly tie it back to Foster, but you, it makes you think like maybe he had something there. I mean, yeah, I narratively, narratively with Foster is like, they you wonder why they spent so much time talking about a guy who didn't even, finish the season in 86 with the team but mm-hmm. it's very clear that narratively the documentary is making foster out to seem like the first piece yeah. uh that kind of t- you know turned the tide for this team i know mookie and orozco were like the first guys who got there but um and they were homegrown pieces but foster was the first guy that they brought in to kind of signify uh all right we're changing the culture around here a little bit i know that generally when you talk about the 86 team, it's like drafting Daryl first overall Mm -hmm. in 1980 was kind of the beginning of that. And then really cementing it was bringing in Keith in 82 as the trade ship. Um, But George Foster was really the signifier that kind of told people around the league that the Mets are actually starting to make moves and try to be a respectable franchise again. And Frank Cashin was a really good GM for you know whatever it's worth Mm -hmm. Um, and even though he put together a team that was completely morally apart from what he wanted right uh he did put together one of the greatest teams in baseball history yeah well I think that's that's a really like interesting point to raise because I mean you think about this ongoing discourse about like emotion in the game and you know respecting unwritten rules and the way that we kind of uh designate certain aspects of the game and of like decorum so to speak as like sacrilege almost the way that uh that tanked a team I mean ultimately what happened was after 86 they made character changes that decimated the franchise um very slowly killed them and you know they guys like Kevin McReynolds and David Cohn and you know, later on Howard Johnson, like they obviously performed well and they, and they deserve their due for what they contributed to those teams from like 87 to 89. But like, you know, when you make a decision, not based on results, but based on, uh, you know, how you feel about a clubhouse or how you feel about the way the game's supposed to be played, even while it's being played at a historically good level, you really, I think, rob yourself of, of something great. Cause I think that team really did have a lot more in its future. 
And the ending was just so sad. I mean, I don't want this to, because there were so many great things about the document, right? Like I thought, I thought the 4th of July thing that they did, and I'm not a patriotic person really, but like the way that they set uh, everybody wants to rule the world to like, you know, Gary Carter hitting home runs and the team like coming back on the Astros in 86, like, like they did so many great things about how that team united New York, right? Oh, the soundtrack to this was fantastic. The soundtrack was phenomenal, man. When I heard Ode to the Mets, though, at first, I was like, yes, like, this is the new song about the Mets. It's the Mets, baby. Love the Mets. And then, like, it just, it just, like, then they got to, like, the helmets changing. And Keith, when they show Keith Hernandez with Cleveland, I, I just felt something fall. Like, yeah. something in my stomach just sunk. And it was like, and I don't even, like, have a commitment to this team. But that's how good a job that they did with it, really, because... That was a slow decay yeah, into it, it made me so sad that ending yeah. the last four or five minutes of this documentary, that montage where they show all these guys in different uniforms. They show Ronnie in, with the A's uniform, Mookie in the Blue Jays uniform. Mookie saying himself, he was like that he thought he was gonna finish his career in New York and he was surprised. Like he asked for a trade, but he didn't think they'd actually move him. Yeah. And then they sent him to Toronto. Like all that was so sad to me i don't know mm -hmm. it just it made me so sad it left such a, a sour taste in my mouth and then they go through the, the montage not only of the guys in the different uniforms but of the next uh you know two decades of this team leading up mm -hmm. to the destruction of shea and i'm just like man oh we like signed a deal with the devil when this ring in 86 it's so sad and, and uh, man i don't know about you the one of the things that was so striking about this documentary kind of pivoting away from the ending there lenny dykstra was as as kind of uh mumbling and you know uh loud mouthy and, and uh cursing as he was yeah i barely uh, understood a word he said but he was also valuable he was incredibly valuable to this doc he, yeah. was, he was entertaining to listen to and he was for someone who has had as many drugs in his system and as as uh screwed up as his brain probably is he was kind of remarkably lucid yeah i mean it's, he had good perspectives on all of this yeah i do wonder like what the perspective is compared to other players just because like like especially i think they kind of well i don't know i see because the thing is Every player has their own story. And I think that's what was really phenomenal about the documentary, right? Like Bob Ojeda pitching through that injury. I never knew about that. The fact that he was basically loading his arm with painkillers and just trying to get anything to work. Um, you learn so many things just from one person. Uh, if they'd had a longer documentary, we could have had Lenny Dykstra's perspective um, and like, Keith Hernandez's perspective or Daryl Strawberry's perspective or, you know, uh, really like Sid Fernandez's perspective, like, because there were so many, I think, instrumental parts of that team. We talked about this at the beginning of 2021, right? Where like, it's, it's great to have a team where like everyone has their own favorite player. This was a team where you could conceivably have 15 different favorite players. Uh, to get Lenny's perspective was great, I think because it's, it's one of the ones that really made you feel the most. I mean, when he talks about Gary Carter, that was also heartbreaking that yeah. Gary lived the straight life. He did everything uh, to code. 
he never went out and 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 put himself in a position to you know hurt himself or hurt his family or you know or or compromise what he could do as a player he did everything he was supposed to and he went first and that was yeah. and that was really really heartbreaking yeah um, i wanted to talk about that that yeah. line that line is the one line that really stuck with me after after this that was the most striking i think quote from the entire four episodes was um when they talk about gary dying uh and him be first of all him being such a big part of this team and then him passing away because of the brain tumor when lenny dykstra says that when he says how incredibly effed up it is that uh he was the guy who played it straight of all the guys on that team of all the stars on that team he was the guy who lived on the straight and arrow and, and was a man of faith and was the family man and lived for something outside of baseball and he was the guy that got taken from them first first of all again a remarkably lucid point for lenny dykstra to make mm-hmm. uh but also, man, how heartbreaking is it to hear one of his teammates say that yeah. and to acknowledge the fact that that it is horrifically ironic that he was the first to go. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, ju- it left me like shaking that line. It, it, yeah. it really struck me. It sent chills down my spine. That one got me. Keith Hernandez's relationship with his father also kind of got me because of the stonewalling that that kind of hung over the 86 championship and the fact that he didn't really get that opportunity to talk with his father about, you know, the kind of figure he wanted him to be. And, you know, for them to not get that opportunity to, to work out their relationship was also very sad to me. And I think that uh, the way that, see, it's not entirely honest or fair to put to put that kind of narrative in the same breath as like, oh, well, the Mets were, you know, good and then they weren't good anymore. And we never got that opportunity to like see them as a group, you know, after 86, do what they did again and make history. Right. Like it's not really fair to put a human interest thing with a sports thing that closely. But I think also it's ultimately a way that helps people understand what loss is like, because losing somebody that you care about. Um, and not getting the opportunity to like appreciate them is something that I mean so many people can speak to and to know that even to know that that's something that you can even understand through the lens of your favorite baseball team is I think they did a a a pretty beautiful job of threading that I thought Nick I mean this is this is probably uh and I don't want this to be like the closing point because I could talk about this for like 15 more minutes and hopefully we can do that but this was like you know this was the best Mets documentary, the best piece of Mets media, I think that's ever been made. I would say it's up there. It's, it's up there for sure. It's better than tears of joy. It's, it's miles better than like tears of joy rushed the ending um, and made a joke of the last week of that season. No one was making a joke of anything that happened with this team and they paid respect to this team because it's the best Mets team of all time. And they gave it its due. I think, yeah, it should have been longer, but they they really adapted to that well. Mm-hmm. It should have been longer, and the last dance treatment again for me didn't land a hundred percent. Um, just because there's no story quite like that, Bulls, you know, story like you can't mm. do that with just any 
sports story. You can't really treat it like that. Like in the last, it's harder with baseball too. Michael Jordan won on a five man team. It's easier. And you also had a very unique set of circumstances with the last dance because there was all that basically found footage that they had because they 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 followed him around with cameras the whole year. Yeah. They didn't do that in 86. They, no one said we're going to do a documentary at some point about this team that they did about the Bulls. I will um, say that, that missing footage they found, though, or not the missing footage, but some of the camera angles they got from 86, like, oh, yeah, beautiful. Like that shot, they, they had a shot of Ray Knight coming home in game six that I'd never seen before, where the players all pile out of the dugout. Like, and you can really see, like, just how much Shea Stadium is shaking. Like I got chills and that was like one of the immediate uh, clips in that film. They just gave it to you right away. And it, it, it I was like, this is going to be good. But yeah, I'm sorry. What were you saying? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's just, that's, that's my big point is I feel like this taught me so much more about this team um, that I didn't know ahead of time. A lot of this stuff has been talked about, obviously like the team's issues with drugs. That's all been talked about. Keith wrote about his relationship with his father in his book. Um, So like that's all been touched on before, but this made all that information extremely accessible to the average fan. Uh, I think that it will only increase the appreciation that fans have for this team while also opening up some very important conversations about the, uh, the moral ambiguity of, of the players on this team. I mean, you talk about not only the drug issues, but they make it very, very clear that not just like Daryl Strawberry was a, a domestic abuser yeah. in the 80s. Like, yeah. They make that very clear. And they didn't even really touch on like He was not the only guy on that team that had issues uh, with domestic violence. Yeah. Lenny Dykstra had issues with domestic violence as well. Like, the, like there were multiple known. Wally Backman too. Yeah. Multiple known abusers on this team. And. So on, on one end, yeah, it does allow Mets fans to have this piece of media about their last championship uh, that they can appreciate and have these incredible stories. But it also does, I think there is room here for a discourse about um, the culture of baseball back then. And it's, a compl- it's, it's acknowledged that it was a completely different culture than it is right now, that yeah. this stuff wouldn't have flown today. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, there is room, I think, for acknowledgement of that conversation about the uh, just general shittiness of, of the, a lot of the people on this team. No matter how good they were at baseball, we have to uh, recognize that there were lots and lots of really problematic things about uh, the men on the 86 Mets. And I think the documentary does do a decent job of highlighting some of that. They could have gone deeper. They could have gone more in depth um mm-hmm. but well it's it's sort of also in hand with the way that they highlight like the real like dark underbelly of new york that was kind of emerging in this time and obviously like ed koch is the mayor crimes off the street that's ending but like wall street greed commercialization all of that is like that's coming to the surface people are cheating the system um people are getting greedy right like there's so much within America. I mean, the war on drugs too. I mean, poverty is a huge thing that they do touch on. I think in the third episode about the fact that not everybody had this kind of access to the spoils that New York was now offering. It was, it was very divided. Um, and the war on drugs was not helping matters at all. I mean, no, yeah, they, they do talk about the war on drugs a little bit in this. They show the, they, they show the crack is whack wall at one point. 
Yeah. It's um, all culture really is, is like the big thing. And that, that's not me putting a, a, that's not me waving hands at the fact that, you know, former, former Mets did really bad things. Um, it's more so just that like, you know, we lived in a world where people could do worse things. Yeah. Um, and, and like credit to Nick Davis and the producers that he worked with. I know Jimmy Kimmel had a big hand in making this as an executive producer, but um, credit to them for really weaving New York into this story as a character. Mm-hmm. I think that they did a very good job, first of all, of building up just how disgusting the city was in the 70s. And I heard my dad grew up in the city, so I heard lots of stories about how New York was an awful place to grow up in when yeah. he was a kid in the 70s. Um, but they do a really good job of showing the turnaround in showing just how that turnaround in the uh the like the extreme greed of the city and extreme kind of uh the extremes of the city the lavishness of the rich lifestyle the club lifestyle versus the uh the the people who were not as well off the poor people in the city and how there was kind of two extremes that were going on at this time in the city and how that weaves in really well with the team and it yeah. it created a, a situation where the Mets could party as much as they wanted to like it's i i thought davis did a really really strong job of characterizing the city in in such a way that worked well with the personality of the team it was almost like the team the city had a very similar personality in 1986 yeah yeah i think that that's a that's a pretty good uh analysis of like the i guess the culture around it i think also I mean, they do a really good job also, I think, within 1986, picking at individual moments, right? Individual games, uh, individual like acquisitions too. Like the, the Lee Mazzilli thing always kind of enthralled me in a way that I don't really feel got like it's due before Once Upon a Time in Queens, right? Because if you think about it, some Met fans may not know that, you know, Lee Mazzilli was basically like the Mets only good player through those late seventies and early eighties before they even went and drafted good guys or traded for good guys. And they, you know, he was one of the casualties. They, they got Ron Darling when they traded him Um, for him to come back in the middle of that season. uh, Even if it was just like off the bench, I thought like that made me think like, damn, like, like imagine if in 2015 they had, traded for Carlos Beltran or like, or like pulled, I'm trying to think of other examples, but that's probably the best one. It's, it's like, imagine if they had just like gotten him, he's on the bench, the guy that you remember from before he's now there. Like that's, that's so special. I mean, cause I think for most of us, we, we always think about, like, I always think about if like the 2006 team had had Mike Piazza on it, because in some respects he had a better year than Paul Duca did. I understand why they let him go. It was a done deal. He'd been there a long time. You had to put it to rest. But, you know, would it have been cool? It Absolutely. It, it would have been really, really cool. And they actually did that with Lee Mazzilli. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I fully agree with you. Um, although I also feel like they kind of glossed over his reacquisition um, and just said they got Lee Mazzilli at the deadline. And then they didn't really talk about him ever again in the documentary. But yeah. He did get a good. He was one of the guys who kind of got a good bit of uh, of time under the microscope in the early part of the documentary, mm-hmm. where they outlined how he was super popular as a, a player on on the team when the team was bad because he was like the New York kid. He was like from Queens and had 
had the New York accent and yeah, the Italian name and and like yeah. was very blue collar, which has always worked as a, as a sensibility with Mets fans. Because mm-hmm. again, that was another thing is that they made it very clear that the Mets were the blue collar New York team. Is that the Yankees kind of signified the lavishness that the city could have sometimes. Yeah, they were like the wasps. I think that's the term they use for the Yankees. Yeah, whereas the Mets were the the kind of the blue collar team, and especially in '86, is that um, they were like fans were really attracted to that aspect that they were kind of grimy and gritty. Yeah, um, and I think everyone in New York loved them. Like I think even the white collar, like Wall Streeters, loved them. You know what I mean? Like it was well, they were just New York's team that year. Yeah, it's hard not to root for the the team when they're that good. Yeah, when they're that good and they're that like impressionable. I mean, it was other teams hated them so much. I mean, I can't remember a time when the Yankees have ever had that much personality, even these days. Yeah, I th- also the curtain call too. Like, I we've definitely talked about that in passing, and Mets fans talk about that in passing all the time because, like, you know, we get a lot of we get so much discourse about like bat flipping and like showboating, excessive celebration. But like the best team that we ever watched invented what was at the time the most disrespectful thing that another team could witness which was the curtain call because that had never been done and it was started by like the most respect respectful and respectable player on the team that was like carter's thing he loved doing that yeah god and i love a good curtain call man there's really nothing better yeah it, it it's pretty cool i wish that uh espn had like gotten a look at lindor's a little bit better last week but yeah, because that's probably the first one all year that a, a player's given, a Met is given at least. I feel like there might have been one before that, but yeah, maybe, maybe, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm content with how the documentary turned out. Um, glad that I found time in my schedule to watch it this week. Again, if you haven't watched it yet, we kind of spoiled the whole thing, whatever. But uh, go watch it. It's worth watching if you're a Mets fan. Uh, I don't know the next time that the Mets will be under the spotlight nationally like this um, and be talked about this much. I mean, MLB The Show like released a, a Keith Hernandez player card because of this documentary. Like a lot of baseball avenues and channels were kind of talking about this as it was being released last week. Like this was prime time. This was airing at eight o'clock on, on ESPN. This was a prime time thing. So it was cool to see the Mets kind of under the spotlight nationally for a hot second. Um, mm-hmm. Would obviously prefer it be because of like the current on-field team in a positive way but it was nice to kind of uh see our last championship get this kind of spotlight yeah Um, and to see a baseball team get that too you know that this was the first baseball team that espn tabbed for something like this i think that's really uh flattering first major sports documentary to kind of get this treatment after the last dance came out during the pandemic so um I'm glad I know they're, they're, they're going to try to do a Jeter version of the last dance I think is, is happening, but I'll watch uh, it. Yeah. I'll watch it. I'll watch baseball content like this. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's it's like always, this. I'll probably like Jeter by the time it's done. Probably. Um, that is probably the only other thing you could really do something like that with. Cause he had the core of players around him like Jordan did. And they, they had that last championship in 2009 at like after the, the dynasty had kind of ended. So I guess you can do something similar like that. We'll see how that turns out, but you could also do something conceivably about like the Marlins in 97 and then, or even in 2003, like those teams that won and then immediately got nuked, like 
those could always be interesting. I don't know. I liked, I, I think they really like that point about something really good going to waste resonated, but maybe they don't want to do that. Maybe they want an actual dynasty and that that's something that I think that people will also eat up. So, yeah. Yeah. If like this, the giants after their dynasty, cause they're really good this year. If they had like traded for Madison Bumgarner at the deadline this year and then gone on a championship run, which they still might go on a championship run. But if that's something like, that's the, another conceivable kind of thing. Cause they still have Posey and belt and Crawford. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, shall we remember some guys and get out of here? I, I assume keeping them with the, uh, the 06 or not the 06, the 86 kind of theme. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so I was looking through the roster uh, and I recognized somebody um, who went on to manage a little bit, John Gibbons. I'm yeah. remembering John Gibbons. Uh, he caught a little bit on the 86 team when Gary Carter got hurt. It was Ed Hearn who became the starter and uh, John Gibbons kind of moved into the backup role and he was, he was pretty good. I mean, it's a small sample, right? I mean, you never really run off things like that, but in 19 at bats, he had nine hits and five were for extra bases. Hmm. That was a one thirteen. That was a 1388 OPS in admittedly 22 plate appearances. And he didn't really, well, he didn't, he, he didn't play after that interestingly that was the end of his career he was only 24 um at the time I don't really can't really calculate what happened they traded him to the Dodgers in 1988 but he was a first round pick for them and he didn't I guess I don't even know if it's that he didn't pan out I think they just really like Gary Carter and didn't have room for him and that was just kind of that did we know who came back in that that trade with the Dodgers yeah Craig Shipley who may not have even played a game for the Mets. I'm looking at it. Oh, he did. He played He played in four games in 1989. Oh, he was an infielder, and he went one for seven. So, right. yeah. Um, I'm also kind of keeping in the same vein of a player from 86 who you're just kind of like, oh, that guy was on that team for a bit. Uh, I'm remembering Dave Magadan, who came up as a rookie in the late part of the season and acted as – uh, like a backup to Keith Hernandez when Hernandez was uh, hurt for a spell or not, you know, whatever. He only played 10 games as a rookie in 86. Yeah. Um, hit 444. He went eight for 18. So similar to Gibbons. Um, although he did not have an extra base hit. In fact, Dave Magadan, despite being as good a hitter as he was, and he's been a major league hitting coach for a bit, uh, 288 lifetime hitter across 16 years. He never hit more than six home runs in a season. Yeah, he was a slap guy. He he was actually he had a couple really good seasons for the Mets. He was a first baseman too. They do yeah. not make guys like that anymore. You cannot survive as a first baseman in Major League Baseball if you're hitting three to five home runs a season. Yeah, um, I mean, not unless you got like whatever the Blue Jays have, right? With like Guerrero and Bichette and Gurriel and like four other semi and like four other guys hitting like 25, 30 home runs. Try 25 30 try hitting 40 homers Sammy yeah and are both above 40 so yeah um so it was just fascinating because he had a little moment too in the the documentary where on yeah. clinch on clinch day when they clinched the division he had the go-ahead hit because he went keith, three for four yeah yeah because uh keith was sick or something had a fever or something yeah they uh, put him on the field anyway for when they clinched yeah. yeah um so that was that was a fun little moment he's dave magadan cousins with lou Pinella, by the way wow yeah, that's interesting. 
twelfth rounder in nineteen eighty, um, but didn't by the Red Sox didn't sign, and then a second rounder in eighty three, and then debuted uh, in September of eighty six. That's yeah. They just kind of let him walk as a free agent, and they went to like a. I think the nineties was one of those. They didn't really have a first baseman for a long time in the nineties. After that happened, like they had. I think he was the last consistent first baseman that they had until Olerud. Yeah, well, they had like Rico Bronia, but he uh, he got hurt, I think, and that was sort of that. They had like David Segui, but he wasn't very good, and also was using performance enhancing drugs. Also, the- Mike Marshall, but that that kind of sucked. All of those teams in the nineties, in the mid nineties, were god awful. So really bad. It was Todd Hundley, and like that was it. Yeah, it was like Todd Hundley and like three years of Bobby Bonilla and Brett Saberhagen just yeah yeah, kind of a black hole I mean at least the 70s had like good pitchers Uh, the late 70s did they really I mean yeah Craig Swan was and John Matlack were both there they were good I guess all right that's fair but yeah I mean I kind of look at those mid to late 70s teams and then the mid to late 90s teams as kind of in the same vein of black hole in Mets history yeah um in the same kind of, I don't know, in the same kind of way that the early 2010s teams were, but at least those teams I experienced firsthand. So I, I remember everything that happened to those teams. Yeah. Regardless, yeah, much. regardless, this was a fun one. I like talking about the doc. This was good. That was good. I, yeah. I mean, if anything like 86 happens in my lifetime, it's, this has all been worth it. I don't believe it will though. I honestly, part of it, like the way that that doc ended, it was like, part of it feels like a curse is being put on us now yeah all uh, the info i have but frankly i hope you're wrong yeah uh, i think statistically as long as i live long enough it's probable we'll get some deep playoff runs uh hopefully sooner rather than later uh looking forward to this week mets have two uh, against the red sox at the fens at the friendly confine no the friendly confines is wrigley excuse me sorry yeah uh at the fens you know at fenway and then mm-hmm. they hit in milwaukee for three over the weekend so um who knows what happens who cares anymore they're not gonna make the playoffs yeah probably eat arby's yeah yeah all right episode 54 in the books hope you enjoyed for jack Hendon, as always i'm sam Lewis. mets fans have a pleasant evening